Hey everyone, and welcome to the Knowledge Exchange podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Arabilla, lead mentor at the Knowledge Exchange. We specialize in helping clinicians apply a BPS approach to their practice. We offer one-on-one and group mentoring to support clinicians with the skills to handle and manage the very real uncertainty and challenges of clinical practice. So if you're interested, reach out at tkex.org and join our community. Today, I'm very lucky to be joined by Kyle Poland. He is a rehab strength coach, college professor, and one of the real heroes in our online space, providing much needed comic relief with memes, as well as highly helpful and educational content. Uh, Kyle, it's an absolute pleasure to have you. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. The infamous question that we, we ask all are, Guests, what's your story? Uh, yeah, that's <laughs> that's gonna be a long one. Uh, basically, my story was uh, so I live in Canada, so I did my undergrad at the University of Waterloo. Um, it was like a five-year co-op program, which got me all kinds of real wo- real-world work experience. Um, but the original plan was to go into physiotherapy. Um, but being at Waterloo at the time that Stu McGill was at Waterloo, uh, he got me very, very interested in in biomechanics very quickly, um, because we had like a first year course taught by Stu, which was basically just, you sit and listen to Stu talk about things he thinks are important for an hour and a half twice a week. Um, so instantly got me hooked on biomechanics. And so I went ahead and took every biomechanics class that Waterloo offered. Uh, Basically, hardcore Dunning-Kruger effect came out of undergrad thinking I knew everything there was to know about biomechanics and I can now solve every injury that anyone's ever going to have. And then I went into grad school at the University of Guelph, um, started studying kind of the neurological side of chronic pain and realized that I knew nowhere near as much as I thought I did uh, and that biomechanics was not everything. And then now I'm trying to teach my students to basically not make the same mistakes that I did and think that I'm going in and fixing people and diagnosing all these very biomechanical problems that maybe either aren't actually problems or we're just not as good at diagnosing them as we think we are. That's a very worthwhile pursuit to, to be able to have that humility. I think that a lot of educators sometimes lack these days. So that's really cool. I wish you were my tutor professor back in the day. Uh, and it's, it's funny with going through like the, what we used to believe and what we used to, how we used to practice and frame and view things and the, existential crisis as we come across new information i'm curious what what was it like for for you back when you started coming across more of the pain neuroscience understandings uh well one of the weirdest things was being so heavily influenced by Stu mcgill one of like the most important things he taught us and he taught me in a very embarrassing way was to never like state something as a fact if you don't have evidence to back it up and the way he taught me that was first year first semester 
we had a class of like 120 students and we had to do presentations where basically we had to pick some kind of myth in the kinesiology world and then present evidence for both sides and then basically tell the class what the evidence says is the truth. Uh, and so I did mine about whether or not running actually leads to osteoarthritis in your knees. Doesn't seem to. Um, but someone asked me a question about something along the lines of what if people were running on different surfaces because the studies you cited, they only ran on a particular surface. So maybe if running on grass or concrete, maybe that makes a difference. And I basically started to try to fumble my way through answering that question. And then Stu stood up and cut off my answer and said, do you know that for sure? Or are you just making it up? And I tried to continue fumbling through it and be like, well, in our neuroscience class, they said something about eccentric and, and Stu cut me off again was like, do you know that for sure? Do you have a study or are you just making it up? And then I basically had to admit to the whole class, I'm just making this up. And then they all laughed at me and then I went and sat back down. Um, so weirdly, from first year, first semester, Stu taught me to always base everything I do on evidence. So then it was super weird getting into grad school, looking at the evidence about pain that directly contradicted the stuff that he taught us in class. But at the same time, he taught us to follow the evidence. And so he basically taught me to get comfortable with the stuff that directly refuted a lot of his work it's, which is yeah, it's, a weird way to get there very interesting it's um so it's a, it's a very helpful and much needed skill to back up claims it's like um talking to uh, no bullshit physio alexis on law he's like experienced with law school and how that's a necessary part of their training but it's not so yeah. much in healthcare for some reason i think that's a very yeah it's interesting yeah, health healthcare is a weird, weird one where people aren't pressured to provide evidence very often, which I kind of feel like if you're playing a key role in someone's health, you should probably have pretty good evidence to back up what you're doing. But you'd you'd assume that people would have that same philosophy and, and framework then in I'd like to think so, but yeah, and uh Bloody hell, sorry for your experience of getting shamed in front of an entire class. I've definitely had my embarrassing moments, but that's like, that, that would have been harsh. I would have been like a dagger. Yeah, he, he gave me 100% on that presentation though. So I think he just wanted to make an example out of me. But it was, yeah, really weird because the reason I ended up pursuing grad school was because basically I, on my very first co-op term, hurt my back and then it just, wouldn't get better even though I was doing everything right by Waterloo biomechanics standards and so I basically figured like my back is so bad that I can't stand for more than five minutes so there's no way I can ever be a physio so I might as well go into research and learn more about why people are in pain and then maybe I can stop other people from having this happen to them um, because physio is just not in the cards anymore and then the way I found my advisor for grad school was actually through one of Stu's PhD students. Um, so basically I ended up going to school studying the neurology of pain, mostly through Stu, but then ended up 
reading a whole bunch of research that made me realize most of the stuff I learned in his class was like 20 years out of date. Wow. Wow. That's um, the meeting of two worlds colliding and with a very real personal experience of pain as well. And yeah, influencing that. And in that the <laughs> that's, that's something that gets me on social media now too, is when people like squat you and Locke and all those guys are like, well, you can't, you can't refute Stu's work if you haven't studied under Stu. Well, I have. And <laughs> Stu is actually the reason that I started looking into pain science and realized he was wrong. So <laughs> yeah, but what a I have studied under Stu and I still think it's time to move on from his stuff. <laughs> yeah, and that takes a lot of a uh, openness, vulnerability to change paths as well. That I imagine a lot of people get into. Uh, I know I, I definitely still do get into rabbit holes and uh, like the sunk cost of getting out and and seeing things from different points of view and perspectives and um, being open to even question and challenge some assumptions and biases that one holds what was it like for for you what was that process like and uh it was it kind of felt like a, a slap in the face at first just like realizing that a lot of the stuff that I had been doing for years either wasn't actually helping people and I was just getting lucky or on or it was helping people but not for the reason that I thought it was helping people um, so yeah, it kind of felt like a slap in the face at first, but then at the same time, when you get to that point, it's, yeah, you either stick with the sunk cost and just, well, I've done it this way for this long and I don't, I don't want to admit that I've been wrong. And so I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing, or you can go the other way and be like, Hey, I was wrong this whole time, but now I know better and now I can do better. So I luckily, well, in my opinion, luckily chose the well, now I have a chance to do better route where I feel like a lot of people will choose the route where it's easier because you don't have to admit that you weren't as correct as you thought you were. Mm. Um, but then you end up just sticking with doing things not as well as you could. So I kind of think the more logical thing to do is, hey, this is a chance to do my job better. So I might as well do it better but other people don't see things that way. Yeah, that's, um, yeah, what an experience as well to have the, you've got the uh, clinical educator, uh, like scientific side of your knowledge base. At the same time, there is a very real lived experience of pain and navigating and making sense of all the worlds and the information, your lived experience. Um, and what was most helpful? What, what were the like turning points in your pain experience? And even if you don't mind as much as you're open to tell us a little bit more about how it started and how you navigated it. Yeah. So basically uh, my first co-op job ever, cause at Waterloo you do like five, four month long co-op jobs. So the first one I ever did was at a physio clinic, um, but it was a hardcore like mill clinic where like the, the whole point was just bill people's insurance as rapidly as possible. Uh, so it was basically just one gigantic room with like 20 treatment like tables and no privacy, barely any time with physios, absolutely no like 
counseling of any sort. It was basically just you sit on a table that's empty. They hook you up with ultrasound and some kind of electrical stim for 20 minutes. They bill your insurance. You get out. The poor co-op student rushes over with a spray bottle and wipes it down and puts fresh towels out. And the next person sits down and they get their ultrasound. Um, so I was super, super overworked at that place. And I, as a young biomechanics focused person, I figured like the constant standing plus the awkward twisting and bending and stuff that you had to do is probably why my back was hurting. So over time, it just kind of started to ache by the end of the day. And then it started aching consistently through the day. And then it got to the point where like, it was so bad by the end of the work day that I had to crawl on my hands and knees when I got home up to my bed because I couldn't tolerate standing up anymore. Um, so it was really, really bad. But now thinking back on it, I think there was probably a lot more about <laughs> a lot more psychosocial stuff going on because I hated that job. I hated the way people were getting treated. I hated the way I was getting treated. Um, so I think there maybe could have been a lot more going on than pure biomechanics. But either way, it got to the point where I was 19 years old and in so much pain, I couldn't walk upstairs anymore when I got home. Um, and then I basically went through the same process that most people with chronic back pain go through, where when you're 19 years old, crawling around on your hands and knees, my parents started to get a little bit concerned. They took me to the doctor to get checked out, got sent for an MRI. MRI came back, got a whole bunch of scary information that I had a herniated disc and I had spinal stenosis and anterior pelvic tilt and facet degeneration and all these horrible things. I have the spine of an 80 year old. Um, the worst thing they said to me, the worst nocebo I've maybe ever heard was they basically said with spinal stenosis, it's just going to get worse over time. And eventually it's going to get to the point where it's going to impinge the spinal cord so much that eventually you're just going to become paralyzed. And so they said, like, no one's going to do surgery on you now because you're 19 and it's so close to your spinal cord that no surgeon wants to take that risk. But if we wait long enough and you just naturally become paralyzed, then we can do the surgery because what's the worst that can happen at that point? You're already paralyzed. Um, so basically I found out at 19 years old that I was going to be paralyzed at some point it was coming. They just didn't know when. Um, so I was very fearful to move. Um, and then I went and took all these biomechanics classes at Waterloo. I took Stu McGill's, like he specifically had a low back disorders course, like everything you need to know about how the low back works and how to fix it. And I aced his course, did everything his course told me to do, read his textbook, front cover to back cover, and nothing worked. And I was still in just as much pain every single day for like seven years as I was the first time. Um, so basically that's why I ended up writing off physio as a career because like I, <laughs> I went to the Museum of Natural History in New York on a trip with my family and my grandma, who had like just had her hip replaced, had to keep stopping and waiting for me because I had to keep sitting down on benches and resting because I was in too much pain. Meanwhile, she's walking around on a fully replaced hip 
waiting for like her 21 year old grandson to rest his his back. So I was in rough shape. Um, and then, yeah, got told all the typical like, well, it's because your core is weak or, oh, it's because your posture is bad. But at the time I was trying out for Canada's like dragon boat team because I used to dragon boat race. But then I started thinking about it and was like, if I'm a contender for like the national team, my core can't be that weak. <laughs> and then if it is that weak, then how weak is everyone else's core? And why doesn't everyone else hurt? Like if I'm, if I'm a candidate for team Canada, why doesn't everyone that's not at that level also have back pain? That doesn't make sense. So that's kind of when I started to realize like, okay, something weird is like, this isn't really adding up. Yeah. It didn't make sense. The narratives yeah. and explanations that you were given in the past. It's like, hang on. If that yeah, were the so, case. Yeah. So I kind of started to think like, okay, well maybe I'm missing something. And then I figured, well, if I go to grad school and study how chronic pain develops in the first place, like all the doctors told me mine is basically unfixable and I've just got to wait until the inevitable paralysis happens, but I can at least stop this from happening to other people maybe, um, which is at least something valuable I can do. It's not physio, but it's something. So then I went to grad school and as part of grad school had to read hundreds of papers. And a lot of these papers were talking about how pain isn't purely physical like I thought it was um and then basically I figured I've spent seven years doing everything right and it's not getting better so why not just start doing things wrong and see what happens so I started doing like what's the worst case scenario the paralysis I'm waiting for goes up a little earlier and I can finally go get that damn surgery um so what's the worst that can happen? So I basically started like, I was taught don't do sit-ups because sit-ups are just going to make it worse. So I like got down on my basement floor and was like, well, what if I do one sit-up? And I did one and nothing bad happened. So I was like, okay, well, I guess some sit-ups are okay. So then the next day I did three and nothing bad happened. And so I did three the next day. And then over the course of several days, I just started to do more. And then it actually kind of started to feel good. And then I had seen videos on Instagram of people doing Jefferson curls and stuff. And was like, I saw a lot of gymnasts doing Jefferson curls. And I was like, oh, that's so stupid. They haven't studied under Stu McGill. They are going to wreck their backs. And I was like, well, sit-ups actually kind of felt good. So I wonder if Jefferson curl feels good. And I did a couple of those and was like, actually getting into these postures that I've been avoiding for seven years actually feels kind of nice and about three weeks later my pain was gone um and it hasn't come back <laughs> so that kind of i was reading all these papers about how pain can be very neurological and not purely physical and then started experimenting under the under the logic that if it's going to paralyze me eventually anyway what's the point in avoiding these things anymore um and now I feel better and I'm not paralyzed um <laughs> and so that kind of 
was the light bulb moment that, okay, well, obviously pain isn't purely physical because I spent seven years acting like it was and it didn't help. And then I spent three weeks considering that, hey, maybe it's more complicated than that. And I feel 100% again. <laughs> wow. Just the, the... And, and then I was kind of mad that it took seven years to get to that point. Yeah, Why okay. didn't someone tell me sooner? Yeah, fuck. Uh, like, and uh, swearing is very much allowed because I just I haven't even experienced what you've experienced, but I want to swear. And um, the I just acknowledging the gravity of that seven years and then three weeks, like that would have been crazy to to experience and go through and then yeah yeah i yeah anger is so valid <laughs> yeah like if someone had told me that when i initially went to the hospital to get the mri how much different could my life have been if i didn't spend those seven years in crippling pain <laughs> like i i distinctly remember the pain being so bad that like my the girlfriend i had at the time when i was in undergrad like there were several nights where I would like be in bed crying and trying to explain to her how like it's just it's so bad that all I want is like one more day where I wake up it doesn't hurt I can live one day without pain and then I can resign myself to this life of excruciating pain every day but all I want is just that one more day of normal that's all I want for the rest of my life and it like brought me to tears which as a grown man at the time was it's still kind of frowned upon to cry as a man, which it shouldn't be men cry. It happens. Um, but that's a different thing. But uh, yeah, I was, I was having a hard time and I had someone explained to me what the MRI meant when I got it, that probably that seven years of suffering probably wouldn't have had to have happened. Wow. Yeah the imagine looking back now so many points where things would have been different for you and the impact of your experience and the meaning of that the scan results and like I, literally i'm trying to think of a um other examples of no, nocebos through the scan results and like wow the what you experienced <laughs> damn they basically gave me them all <laughs> yeah far out um, and the, then the, the shift then towards helping other people as well, led you down, uh, more of the education route to learn a bit more about pain that I imagine you hadn't come across these papers previously in your, uh, biomechanics degree. Never. Yeah, I hadn't even, I hadn't even, hadn't even heard of like the biopsychosocial model. I didn't know there was models of pain. I basically just learned you find the physical problem, you fix the physical problem, the pain goes away. But then I tried that and it didn't work. <laughs> and then I realized so many other people have tried that and it doesn't work. And then I tried the opposite for three weeks and got better. And then that kind of clicked because I was studying central sensitization. So basically like, why does the nervous system sense pain for so long? And one of the keys for central sensitization is that it can persist even when the physical problem is gone because it's a central issue. So like a lot of the, these papers I was reading were talking about 
potentially that's why some surgeries don't go mm. super well. Like someone can get a microdiscectomy and still feel pain, even though the physical problem is fixed, supposedly, um, because it's not a physical problem anymore. It's a, there's a neurological mechanism happening. And then I kind of thought about that and thought about, okay, well, maybe if I'm trying so hard to fix the physical problem and it's not working, what if I work on the neurological side of things and then it worked? And then I realized maybe there's so many people suffering from chronic pain that are doing everything right, everything they're being told to do, and it's not working because they're being told that information. And so that kind of got me down the path of like, okay, I need to start <laughs> teaching other people to not say the things to people that were said to me so that there's not a whole bunch of other 19 year olds crawling around on their hands and knees waiting for inevitable paralysis to come for no reason. <laughs> so that's kind of how I ended up teaching. <laughs> yeah. If, if ever there was a, a mission statement, like a kind of the values of um, pursuing education and, and communicating evidence in the, especially in the world of, of social media on the surface, it, it doesn't look as you know meaningful with the means, but underneath the surface as real humans experiencing uh, very real pain that can uh, lead to so much loss and op missed opportunities and time wasted and money spent. There's very real harms in our narratives and approaches. So that, that passion of yours to like educate and help other people is like ah, inspirational. Yeah, well, yeah, that's why I focus so much now on posting on social media and trying to change the way that people communicate just because I, being on the receiving end of it, I know how much damage it can do. <laughs> like it totally would have changed the trajectory of my life had I not just kind of gotten lucky and gone into studying pain, um, where every single person out there experiencing chronic pain doesn't have the luxury of doing a master's degree studying it to learn how to feel better <laughs> so there's a lot of people out there that aren't going to just kind of luck their way into getting better so we need to do a better job of educating people <laughs> so that we don't cause people to experience chronic pain for no reason yeah yeah far out the um and w with your studies you what happened with the degree you finished that one and i know you're still doing further research so tell us a bit more about um, the education path that, that you're on now with all the like experiential learning that you did by yourself without any guidance from a professional that already is like mind-blowing for me to hear yeah so now um so I finished grad school during COVID. So I basically like, I got through some of the study I designed, but then COVID became a thing and we weren't allowed to be in the same room as other people. And so that made it really hard to continue human research. Uh, so I basically got like a pilot of my study done and that's it. Um, so now that I'm at the college, I'm basically working on it's kind of weird how it works at the college level in Canada because like the university level as a professor, most of your job is 
running your research program and then you kind of teach on the side. Whereas the college level is your job is strictly teaching. And then if you want as a bonus, you can try to do research, but most people don't and they just focus on teaching. Um, so I'm trying to basically continue my research now because I didn't get a chance to finish it. Um, but kind of taking it a different, a different route that I did in grad school, just because in grad school, it was still being directed by my advisor. It was still very focused on like isolating purely the biological part of pain. Um, and trying as much as possible to limit the psychological or the sociological parts of it, which I suppose has value on a research level, but on an application level, you can't isolate it. So I'm trying to kind of shift my research more to actually applying information <laughs> to the real world rather than trying to isolate specific aspects, just because when you're dealing with a real person, you're not able to isolate purely biological markers of pain. They're a person with their own experiences and that's what you're working on. <laughs> yeah. And with uh, your personal experiences and, and what you've come across online and in person with interactions with other practicing healthcare professionals, I'm curious with uh, what you're, what you've come across with the research, and where you're looking at expanding on the, your own research. What do you notice discrepancies? What's it like talking and interacting with other healthcare professionals? I imagine there's like different groups that are more in line and understanding and actually reading, staying up to date, and there's other groups that don't for various reasons. Yeah, it's uh, a <laughs> that's a bit of a minefield. <laughs> there's some people that are very very open to or there's there's people that are acting the way you would hope a healthcare provider would where if you present them with new evidence that allows them to do their job better they adapt and start doing their job better and then like you said there's the sunk cost people that are the people that have been doing it this way for this long and they're not going to let some young guy fresh out of school tell them that they're doing it wrong uh and they push back uh so it's yeah it's a it's a bit of a minefield the uh the gym slash clinic i worked at until a few months ago <laughs> i ran into some issues because they basically recruited me because they said you have all this research experience with working with people in pain you'd be a great fit for this place so i came in started honestly educating my clients that I was training about potential reasons they were experiencing pain and how it's so complicated. And there's so many things that play into it. Um, but then I ended up getting booted out of that place because the stuff I was saying was directly refuting a lot of the things that the clinicians were saying, and it was costing the business money. Um, so basically they said <laughs> the way they phrased it was the way you do things makes the services offered by the clinic seem irrelevant to which my thought was, that sounds like they're the problem then 
if being honest with people makes your job irrelevant, maybe you need to change the way you do your job. Um, <laughs> they disagreed, shockingly. Um, so I don't have that job anymore. So I'm focusing on teaching. <laughs> it's it's um, so common and crazy to think, um, come across in the other side of the world, very similar experiences where there's new grads who are up to date thanks to their R, like I'm included in this privileges of being up to date with, with social media and following the right crowds and um, having access to easily um, translated research um, findings and summaries and um, the opportunity and time to do so nowadays with the power of social media. But then they go to their workplace where the systems and the processes almost counter some of the values of what we've just talked about, you know, providing that honest education and not saying that there's one right or wrong system or framework, but just that, that honesty and that um, humility and transparency with like, this is what we know, this is what we don't know. And here's how we can help you is just so unfortunately still very rare in clinical practice these days. Yeah. Like there's, there's one key example of a, a client like I was training and they were also seeing the chiropractor for treatments. Um, but basically they were taught that the way that they were breathing was incorrect. And so the way the muscles they were using to breathe were the reason that their back hurt. But this person had some pretty intense, like health anxiety. Um, and so basically telling them that the way they were breathing was wrong just made them way overthink breathing and they went around all day after being told that bracing really really hard out of fear that if they breathed incorrectly their pain was just going to get worse and then it turns out their pain got worse from squeezing their core all day and being hyper focused on how they were breathing so they came in for their next training session and were telling me all of this um and then we were, they were working out and they started to breathe heavy. And then they started to worry because they were like, oh, well, like it feels like the muscles of my chest and shoulders are getting involved in breathing when I was told it should only be my diaphragm. And I was like, well, actually those muscles, like their job is to help you breathe when you are breathing more intensely than normal. So it's actually good that they're you're feeling them now because that's what they're supposed to do. And don't worry about them being overactive when you're like cleaning the house at home because your body's smart and those muscles will do their job when they're needed and they won't when they're not needed. And they're like, oh, that makes a lot of sense. And they went home, didn't worry about their breathing, came in two days later for their next training session. They're like, actually, my back hasn't hurt for two days. And then they went back to the chiropractor and explained, actually, Kyle said that I don't have to worry about my breathing all day. And I actually feel a lot better. And then conflict. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that's so, ah, again, common and freaking frustrating to, uh, to hear even like dismissing the person's lived experience of it getting better and just saying, you know, I'm, I'm right. And this is the yeah. right way of doing it. I imagine was involved in that discussion and that was an interaction that was the most 
the most frustrating part was like I was saying stuff like that to people they were feeling better and then it was like <laughs> coming back negatively on me that people were feeling better and I was like isn't this what we're trying to achieve like a lot of these people are exactly like I was where they're in a lot of pain strictly because they've been told bad information like they've been told that something is wrong with them their body is broken their posture is wrong and basically all I would do is like site research I had my laptop on me like with their programs on it all the time so a lot of times I would like pull up slides that I show my students or like pull up a section of my thesis and be like hey look at this and then talk them through it and they'd go hey that makes a lot of sense they'd start to realize that maybe their body's not as broken as they were told it was they'd start to feel better and then for some reason that made me look bad i don't know <laughs> far out that uh, i can imagine in your situation it's exhausting to get that and get the the pushback from yeah, yeah. you've got the uh more empirical evidence and at least um, more reliable sources of information and, and knowledge plus the person's lived experience and how they're noticing the changes themselves but i'm not what's it like in the context of the medical hierarchy over here we, we definitely have a hierarchy and and um to clarify as well for your context were you, what was your role as a kinesiologist or as a personal trainer in within that setting because i know that uh, the the hierarchy does play a, a, a role over here if yeah. like a specialist says one thing that's deemed as that's, being of higher value than say it you know a EP, that's a really good point trainer. yeah so i was i was a personal trainer because in the the kinesiologist title is weird in canada so like in any other province a kinesiologist is not a protected title and anyone can call themselves a kinesiologist Strictly in Ontario, where I live, a kinesiologist is a registered healthcare provider. Um, so you need less education than I have to become a kinesiologist, but you have to pay a $600 per year membership fee to use the title. But you also make less hourly, you make a lower hourly wage as a kinesiologist than you would as a CSCS but you get to use the title, but also your insurance costs more, but your insurance doesn't cover you as well. So basically I'm not a kinesiologist because I would make less money while paying more money to do the same job. So I just call myself a trainer, <laughs> way simpler, but yeah, there was a major hierarchy and that was another, another weird thing that came up was because I was saying, what I was saying which was based on evidence and then other people that were like there was an athletic therapist who also had less like a lower level degree than I had but is a healthcare provider whereas I had more education but I'm not a healthcare provider so the athletic therapist's view as a healthcare provider automatically was more valuable than mine and same with the chiropractor. Anything the chiropractor said was taken as what was right because they were a doctor of chiropractic and I am not. 
And so one of my points was like, I am citing evidence when I'm making these statements. And then I was basically told, well, you're not a chiropractor, so you can't comment on how chiropractors do things because you're not a chiropractor. So then my point was, okay, well, if I, if I left, I went and got my chiropractic degree. I came back and now I am a doctor of chiropractic and I cite the same research. Am I right now? Because I'm a chiropractor, but I'm wrong citing the same research now because I'm not a chiropractor. Is that how that works? <laughs> um, in most places, that is how it works, which we should value the evidence more than the person presenting it. <laughs> so I don't have a title, but it's not about my title. It's about the quality of the evidence. The frustrations of constraints in the medical system and hierarchy and with the healthcare professional title, I'm imagining there's a benefits eligibility to insurance with, within your province as well. Yeah, super limited for athletic therapy or kinesiology, basically only teachers. Um, but like a physio or a chiro, absolutely get benefits coverage for, or most people get benefits for physio or chiro or both. Um, so yeah, like everyone that came to me had to pay out of pocket. Everyone that went to the chiro or the physio or whatever could bill their insurance if they had insurance but yes yeah because the canadian healthcare system is weird we're like our seeing a medical doctor is covered most of the time unless it's like something you're choosing to do but prescriptions you have to pay for and unless you have insurance and any kind of like paramedical like physio or chiro whatever dentistry optometry not covered basically if you see a medical doctor it's covered everything else is out of pocket or insurance but no one has insurance for tr personal training <laughs> yeah even though the values of exercise as a form of quote-unquote medicine is often understated in a lot of these discussions and you know, assumptions i guess within the medical hierarchy that's yeah it's, I definitely side with there's a growing um, opinion, I guess, uh, supporting the notion of if we're looking at the value of knowledge and the epistemology of our claims and understanding, if we're all basing off high quality evidence and interpreting from that source, why should our approach be dictated by our professions in the first place? And then yeah. that, that's like a more of the historical context coming in to play and then other kind of medical, legal, societal, cultural beliefs intermixed within that. Cause I, I definitely meet a lot of personal trainers that I would trust a lot more to refer to than even an EP and yeah. exercise physiologist, which is like a kinesiologist over here. From my understanding and it's like we shouldn't be profession based we should be evidence based yeah and i i fully support like the people that are kind of pushing that view just because if every profession follows the evidence 
they should more or less be indistinguishable from each other. So like I, <laughs> I always get questions because in Canada, we also have exercise physiologists, which are different from kinesiologists and athletic therapists and chiros and physios and osteopaths. And so people ask like, well, what's the difference between if I go to a trainer versus an exercise physiologist or a kin or a physio or a chiro or an osteo? If they're evidence-based, they should more or less be indistinguishable. <laughs> yep, yep. The only way you're going to see clear differences between those professions is the people that are sticking to the historical way of doing things and not the scientific way. 100%. And shout out to, I think it was your most recent post that dived into this a little bit from memory <laughs> of like the... It, it may have been. I, I haven't posted in a while just between holidays and just being burnt out and frustrated with how my in-person training went. Of course. <laughs> I was yeah. just kind of like, I'm going to, I'm going to take some time off. <laughs> yeah. Much needed space and time. Um, and the, out of, out of curiosity from my selfish curiosity, the exercise physiologists, uh, how would you describe their general work or what kind of fields are they in? Cause I'm, my understanding is as well, cause we have, international listeners, um, mostly Australian. So, uh, with EPs, exercise physiologists over here, it's a very broad spectrum scope of practice generally within the chronic disease management, cardiovascular, cardiometabolic and neurological pain, MSK as well. What's, what's the kind of scope I'm imagining there's so many overlaps. It sounds like there's even more professions in, in your province than I thought we have osteo. Chiro, you know, physio, EP, personal trainers, SNC coaches, podiatrists, but you have like five more. <laughs> yeah, we we have a lot, um, and that's that's one of the problems. Is there, like, the reason that Ontario is the only province that has kinesiologists as like a registered healthcare provider is because they have a really hard time explaining what makes them different. So like I've looked at their like scope of practice and it's not even a scope of practice. It's like a chart. Um, and basically like a kinesiologist says that they can prescribe exercise. They can deal with MSK. They can deal with metabolic conditions, neurologic conditions, cardiovascular ones. They can deal with nutrition, but basically they're just like taking little tidbits of a whole bunch of other fields. So like they're like, kind of like a dietitian, but not as good kind of like a trainer but not as experienced in exercise prescription kind of like a physio but not as experienced in msk whereas an exercise physiologist is basically like the way they kind of explained it to me in school was like i'm a cscs and basically to be an exercise physiologist you have to write an additional exam after your kinesiology degree same as you do for a cscs same as you do to be a kinesiologist and basically the way it was explained to me was like, if you want to go into working with athletes, you become a CSCS. If you want to work in like a hospital setting, like cardiovascular rehab, stroke rehab, that kind of thing, you become an exercise physiologist. That was kind of the way it was described. Like if you want to, if you want to deal with the conditions that are not MSK, you become an exercise physiologist. Yeah. Yeah. This is, um, yeah, it's fascinating to hear the, the context of the clinical identities and how that influences practice. And we can apply the same kind of use amazing logic, like 
very easy. You know, if I had this degree and I was saying the same claim, would that would you take that? Would you interpret that differently? And there there are contexts where yes, unfortunately, that it would be interpreted differently. There's a like a value attached to the the source of each claim, and it's so unfortunate because we there's so much potential for collaboration if we're all basing it off similar um, high quality sources. Yeah. And it just, it makes it way easier for the actual person who's just trying to feel better if they're getting told a consistent story. Because like most of my job in all honesty, like a lot of times people will be like, because the way I was training people was helping them feel better. Like, or I, I don't like, I'd sometimes use the word helping when I don't mean to, don't want to say help, but whatever. People were feeling better from my training and people would be like oh like what what exercises are you giving them like what is it that's so special about the way you do things and i made a meme that got like 10 likes like a year ago that i had loved from the office but it was basically just i don't do anything differently for someone in pain than i would with someone walks into a gym for the first time and they're like hey i want to put on some muscle and lose a little bit of weight what what can i do the workout i would give them basically indistinguishable from the person the work and I would give someone in pain um I it's nothing to do with the exercises I'm giving them the exercises don't even really have to be that specific a lot of the time basically all I do is have them do a workout and while they're doing that find chances to sneak in a little bit of pain education and giving them little tips for things they can do on their own time and they tend to feel better. Um, so yeah, like it's, it's not really anything to do with what I'm doing. It's basically just unpacking bad information that they've been told in a way that's not like challenging them, but just kind of, it's, <laughs> it's almost like my best attempt at impersonating someone that knows how to do cognitive behavioral therapy. It's basically just like asking questions that will make them start to question whether the things they've been told are actually as truthful as they thought. And then once they kind of start that snowball, they go home, they think about it and they come back and go, you know what? I don't think I'm as broken as I was told I was, but <laughs> it would be really nice if the job wasn't 100% just unpacking unhelpful beliefs. If they weren't given those unhelpful beliefs in the first place, I wouldn't have to spend three hours a week with people helping them unpack it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. As a the helping people with the filters that they haven't been given and helping them reflect on the assumptions and the sources and all those skills in the like the front line, we'll say. And then there's the, the other like back end, like how can we influence societal cultural beliefs where where did these beliefs come from in the first place and then there's research saying a lot are from healthcare professionals are from us and yeah it's like questioning and, and reflecting on like what we're saying what we're doing and how also that message is being interpreted um and there's so many like avenues i can see with going into this and there's definitely multiple in this dynamical system what, what would you say would be most helpful for we'll, we'll stick with clinicians as um listening on what can we do as clinicians um 
to yeah, debunk as well as maybe try to inoculate our clients, our, our patients from the, the bullshit that is out there? Um, I think the most important thing is just like letting them know that a lot of the, the very scientific language that is used sounds very intimidating, but the human body is much more adaptable and resilient than most people are told throughout their lives. Um, and basically, yeah, just trying to teach them that they're not as fragile as they think they are. And there's so many ways you can do that. Like I had one, I had one client who was basically like, she couldn't go out and sit at a restaurant. Like that was her goal was I want to be able to go for dinner with my husband again, because the restaurant chairs are too uncomfortable. Um, and I basically like, she was comfortable doing Romanian deadlifts with like an eight pound dumbbell, but she, any more than that, she'd get scared. because She thought she was taught she was fragile. And I basically found ways to like fool her into putting a lot more load on her spine than she thought she was. And then after she did that and saw some progress and went up and weights and so on, I was like, Hey, by the way, like, you know, <laughs> that's actually more stressful on your spine than the thing you were scared of doing. And she was like, really? And I was like, yeah, that's how, that's how adaptable your spine still is. Cause she came in and was like, well, I'm old. I have arthritis. Like I've just accepted this is the way things are now. And then basically I just had to give her some time to realize she was stronger than she thought she was. And then one day she came in and was like, Oh, I was just chatting with her about her weekend. And she was telling me all about how like, Oh, I spent like eight hours both days helping my son and his wife like paint their new deck and I was like oh like what were you doing and she's like oh well I was like down on my hands and knees crawling around like painting and I was like and how did your back feel after that and she was like oh oh I guess I never really noticed and I was like so you're not as fragile as you thought you were remember when you said this is just the way you are now and you're stuck like this a month ago did did you think you'd be crawling around for eight hours on your hands and knees probably not and then that once that kind of clicked she well she stopped coming because she felt better um <laughs> but yeah the best way to inoculate people is basically just help them realize that they're not fragile and so the next time they people get hurt all the time so they're probably gonna get hurt at some point in their life they go go to a doctor the doctor hopefully won't but probably will tell them some very threatening information and they're going to think, well, that's what they said last time. And look what I can do. So I'm probably going to get over it this time too. Yeah, Learning from that experience and helping them reflect on actually, they're a lot more adaptable and robust. Their bodies are more resilient than they were led to believe. And this makes me very curious with like my mind just swapped, uh, say, 65 year old lady with persisting back pain, take her out of the picture and replace that with a clinician who maybe has that pathoanatomical, structural, uh, kinesiopathological model of they just don't think that the body is as resilient. How would we then, because the question was with patients and clinicians and again, mm -hmm. not expecting any magic solutions from either of us right here, right now, but what, what might be some helpful steps to inoculate clinicians um 
I, I guess it would be more of like a challenge to clinicians than anything, but like not being afraid to load your clients or your patients and then see what happens. Cause a lot of people get like chronically underloaded because not because they don't think that they can do something, but because the clinician is too scared to add load because they think the person's fragile. And so, yeah, I guess just a challenge to clinicians that are afraid to add load, add load. The person can probably tolerate it. And if they can't lighten it a little bit, try again. And just kind of start doing that with your patients and you'd be surprised how adaptable and resilient they are. They can handle a lot more than you give them credit for. And I think the clinicians starting to realize that, okay, maybe people aren't that fragile. Maybe I can load them. will go a long way towards helping the patients learn that they're not fragile and it's okay to load. Yeah. I think that it's a, it sounds almost too simple to be true and acknowledging that there's lots of complexity within this, but just having that experiential learning process to realize that we can break some rules with even ourselves as well with our own training as clinicians and our assumptions and then trying it out with with clients as well that you know that we can break some of the uh, movements uh paradigms maybe that we've been taught and then uh, acknowledge that our clients can be resilient and adaptable maybe a bit more than we yeah. think so that it's it's that fear that we have that we would be causing further damage and other yeah powers involved i, I can in there as well I can think of a, a great example of that of someone I worked with recently where basically they they started to get back pain. They went to physio. The physio gave them exercises to do. They did the exercises. They helped. The person started to feel better, but then the physio never progressed them. So when by the time they came to me, they had been doing 30-second planks three times before every workout they did at the gym for like a year. And I was like, maybe we try a pro progressed, more difficult core exercise. We tried it. They handled it just fine. And they felt instantly better. And it was literally just the clinician loaded them, which was great. I'm happy they added load. But then they were afraid to go further. Where all the person needed was just that little bit of progression to get them all the way to hundred percent. And the clinician was too afraid to give them that. <laughs> and it, this as well, clinician can be uh, anyone, any one of us, any one of the professions that we mentioned a few minutes ago with the kind of professional titles that we, we can all have this very real human uh, discomfort, fear, uncertainty, anxiety about loading and movement in general. Um, and we can also hold certain pain science beliefs, but then in practice, not be applying and, and experimenting because of our own discomfort and uh, yeah, the hesitation to load our patients and clients. Like they'll they'll yeah. probably get a flare up and they'll never come back. And that kind <laughs> of voice in my head, I know I still have in this to this day. Uh, it, yeah. It is a very and real I, process to go through. Yeah. And that's, that's a very reasonable thing to fear i think but a lot of the times i've noticed these discussions tend to happen on like speaking about a client 
in theory or a client that is real but isn't around to contribute to the conversation. And so it's hard to be like, okay, well, how much load do I add? How do I know when it's time to go up? Is there like a hard, like, give me a chart to follow? And it's, it's got to be patient centered. They have to be included in the conversation. Give them the weight, let them try it. How does that feel? Feels good? Great. We'll stick with that one. You don't like that one? Okay, let's back off a little bit. We can't have these conversations in the absence of the person because the person is what makes difference. Everyone's going to be a little bit different. There's some people might take a month before they go up and wait. Some people might go up and wait the next day. Depends on the person, but we can't have these conversations without their input because they're the ones that determine when it's time to add load. That's a soft and missing and segues beautifully into the consent, informed consent and the value of, you know, we're having a privilege as clinicians. And often I hear secondhand, like when talk, discussing case, cases and patients and clients, there, there is the, um, the classic reduction of this is a knee pain patient or this is a back pain patient. It's like, it, at times it can be very helpful for medical uh, kind of the terminology it can be easier when discussing um, certain stories and, and sharing notes. I'm just imagining that it's helpful to describe a patient as a back pain or as a diagnosis, as a, as a, as a short form, but it mm-hmm. depersonalizes that there's a human that requires some autonomy and there is a shared decision-making process in the end through an evidence-based framework that is often missed out on. And it's the lived experiences that we, we need to hear of a little bit more. So what would the informed consent kind of process framework, what are some of the necessary essential components that perhaps aren't talked about enough? Um, I think, yeah, the way informed consent is not talked about enough, I think is, well, since I come from like a research background, like anytime you participate in research, the first step of the study as a participant, you walk in, they have you sit down with this huge booklet that basically describes step-by-step what's going to be done to you, what the study is, what group you might be assigned to, what's going to happen to each person in each group, what that's going to feel like, what long-term effects might there be. And then once the person has read all of that information, (laughs) then it asks them, do you consent to participate? Being fully aware of what will happen to you now, what might happen to you later, you have all the information necessary to be fully informed. Do you consent? And if they do, then they can participate. If any of those things don't sound worth it, they don't sign, they don't have it done to them, which is like a key right and is a major part of research ethics. But then that doesn't get applied in the healthcare world, which is where we end up getting a lot of basically people getting promised one thing but then actually getting something else so like a lot of clinicians will ask people for consent for treatment but then they'll promise the treatment does this magical thing and it doesn't do that thing it does something else but either the clinician's not informed 
and definitely the patient isn't informed. And so they're giving consent to something and they're getting something else. So a point I've been trying to make recently is that if people get informed consent for research, they should get the right to informed consent for healthcare. They should be told exactly what will be done to them and what could happen because of that truthfully and then give their consent. And so like an example of that would be like, like cupping, for example, like if you go to a clinician and they say, Hey, I want to do cupping on you. And it is going to deform your fascia and pull the layers apart and break up scar tissue. And that's going to make your back pain better if I do it on your IT band. And the person consents to that. Well, they've now consented to something that physiologically is not possible. So they've consented to something, but they haven't been informed. Whereas if they go to get cupping done and it's like, hey, this is going to probably break some capillaries on your leg. It's going to leave some circular bruises. It might feel good for a little while, though. But that's it. It's going to feel good for a little while. And that has value. Would you like to feel good for a little while knowing that you're spending your money on this and your time? Or is there something else you would rather be do with that time? Do you value temporary relief? And if they do, then they can consent to it. But now they're informed. <laughs> they're not consenting to something that's not actually physiologically possible. And so, yeah, that's a point I like to make is that a lot of these treatments you can totally keep doing as long as people are informed. Like for all I care, if someone wants like their scalp scratched because it feels nice and they're coming in for an ankle, but they want a, head, a scalp massage because it feels good, then go nuts. Is it going to make their ankle heal faster? No. Is it going to break up scar tissue? No. Does it feel good? Yeah. And maybe they want that. As long as they're informed, you can do whatever crazy treatment you want. They just need to know what will happen and not some made up impossible thing. They need to be informed before they give their consent. Yeah, that's it. It's, without that, there is, you can't have informed consent. And I think it goes back to if the clinician is not informed in the first place, then you also, you can't have informed consent. Yeah. Because <laughs> you, the clinician thinks that they're accurately describing what's going to happen without being aware themselves that that's not possible. <laughs> like you're not breaking up scar tissue with your bare hands. And so if you, as a clinician, think you are, you might think you're telling your patient the truth, but you're not. And now they're consenting to something that is not actually what they're getting. So many times this, um, when discussing cases and uh, complex kind of scenarios where things aren't working, the, in a case review, supervision, mentoring discussion, there is that question of what are their goals? Why are they here? And how is this treatment going to help them towards those goals, like functional goals? And that al yeah. already that like um, helps solve a lot of the problems where there is just things tacked on for symptom modification here and, and this didn't work. And then there's like a growing pile of things that people have tried and they're not quote unquote working. 
when there's either mm-hmm. number one, what are their goals for coming in to therapy? And like your example beautifully said before of the, the lady that came in before with, with back pain and you load her up, she didn't need to come anymore. Goals ticked. Fantastic. Yeah. That's your job has been done. And that's high value that like you, that's, that's it ticked, mm-hmm. but there's uh, I'm very much guilty of this, that clarification of the person's goals and the honesty with that, when there's pain free in that goal. And then that number two of informed consent of what the treatment will do to someone with yeah. full transparency as well. Like acknowledging, I don't know actually what the results are going to be, but I do know this and I do know that research shows this. Yeah. And that's actually a really good point. Like you said about when they kind of just keep piling stuff on and well, this didn't work and this didn't work and this didn't work. Well, maybe the treatment did exactly what the treatment does, but the expected outcome was not explained properly. So like if someone has severe knee pain because they've dislocated and torn all the ligaments in their knee and you give them a massage and you tell them that this is going to promote healing of the knee, but you don't work on any other lifestyle factors and the knee pain doesn't go away. They're going to come to the conclusion. Well, massages don't work, but the massage probably did exactly what massages do. They feel nice. They make the muscles relax for a little bit of time, but you were promised it was going to magically heal you. And that didn't happen because you consented to something that isn't real. You consented to this magical healing and that's not what that treatment does. So the treatment did what the treatment is meant to do, but you were told it was going to do something else and it didn't happen. It doesn't mean the treatment doesn't work. You just weren't truthfully told what that treatment does. Misinformed consent, we'll call it. Yeah. In this case. Yeah. Yeah. That's, misinformed consent. <laughs> that's a new term. Um, we can share that trademark and, and make lots of profit off that one. <laughs> in our new course, but yeah, yeah we'll that, coin that. that, that process is so, so important. And it longer form points of contact, like this discussion here in, in podcasts and, and people I, I feel in clinical practice deserve that, uh, this discussion when going through case reviews. Um, so I'm sure that the listeners right now are like thinking of goal setting, informed consent, what that might actually look like. And I'm sure there's, it's stimulated some discussions, much needed reflection on if, the person has not been going, gone through a proper informed consent process. That's what we start with. And we can use research examples to, to go through that. And that people can opt out as well of treatment if things aren't working or aren't aligned yeah. with their goals. That's fine. You've given them the choice. The fact that the, that choice isn't sometimes made or not clarified. Now, the process itself is not clarified. So there is no yeah. informed consent. It's absent. Yeah. And that's, that's like, I'm, I'm biased towards exercise, obviously, because I'm a trainer, but like, truthfully, people can feel better without any exercise at all. So truthfully, someone could come in for chronic pain and I could be like, Hey, do you want to do some exercises? And they have the right to go, you know what? No. And then we'd try something else because there are other things we can do. Yeah. So like, I mean, exercise is great. People should exercise just in general, but people have the right to consent to that too. If they don't want to do exercises, they don't want to do them. We'll find something else to do. That's it. And you've given, you've opened up that collaboration and that shared decision-making of the process for 
the, the client. So they have a, a say in that process. And they're also understanding of the honesty of you, that you had that this is not going to cure your chronic pain. We don't know if it might. We, there's a lot of supporting research. It might help with other things based on your functional goals as well. But mm. like, there's no magic pill, unfortunately. And we need to yeah. be upfront with everyone on that. Yes, they, they need informed consent. They need to know what will and will not happen or what might happen. And Mate, no is, magic. Yeah. <laughs> it's such a necessary conversation. And I really appreciate your examples as well. Like you said, we need more client examples out there to show case and like the, like the lived experience is so necessary. There's a lot of qualitative research out there now, which is growing. And uh, yeah. I feel like I, I had a bit of an insight into your own experience. So I appreciate your vulnerability in, in sharing that to say the very least during this, oh, yeah. during this time. No worries. Time. I, I like to tell as many people as possible just because the number of people that I've told that story to and they go, oh my God, that's exactly what's going on with me. <laughs> like so many people are going through the exact same thing. It makes me wonder how many people suffering from chronic pain don't need to be just because they've been told that they should be expecting pain all the time like I was. Like that that anger fuels that passion to make a difference and do what we can within our circles. So, Carl, I really appreciate your time. Is there, first of all, anything I've missed that you'd like to cover? And second of all, very importantly, where can people find you? I'm curious to hear. Um, yeah, no, I think I think that was a really good discussion. You brought up a lot of good points that like I haven't thought about and just kind of brainstormed on the spot here, which was really cool gave me some and ideas to start my posts up again yeah uh, <laughs> and uh yeah basically i just have my kind of training rehab instagram which is just at tactical underscore fit which uh i initially started my my training focused on first responders hence the tactical part and then i just never bothered to change it um but yeah that's basically it just at tactical underscore fit on instagram um other than that <laughs> you can move to canada and take some of my classes but that's about it <laughs> Mate, i'm keen and, and super excited to see where the education side goes for you i think that i've been talking to a lot of content creators such as yourself there's a lot of hard work behind the scenes that people don't know about so you're doing a lot for us and there's a huge value that is un underappreciated and underrated. So, Well, one kind of super cool last anecdote to wrap up, but I actually, uh, I got an email from a student that's in one of my exercise prescription classes next semester, which starts next week. Uh, but he emailed me to say that he picked up his timetable, recognized my name, thought about it for a while, and then realized it's because he follows me on Instagram. And I was, I think that's really cool that like students that are just kind of starting their journey are finding the silly memes that I make and make myself laugh and enjoying them and learning from them. So I think that's super cool. So necessary. That's, that's awesome. It's, um, it's cool. We don't often hear these stories as well as content creators and we only hear like third hand or second hand. So yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Appreciate that, Kyle, and I'm very much looking forward to future conversations until the next one. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, thanks for having me on.